we love you because you first loved us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Excited to be here with y'all this morning as we continue our series on superheroes in the Bible. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, we'll be in the book of Judges this morning, chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. When we hear about uh, people who have accomplished uh, great things in history, uh, we tend to put them on a pedestal and think that they are superhuman or that they are above average. But whenever you look through history at people who have uh, created uh, amazing things or done amazing things for society, you'll find that oftentimes these, these people that have done amazing, incredible, above average things actually have seemingly fewer abilities or disabilities compared to most of us. Um, for example, Homer, uh, the uh, Greek poet, not Homer Simpson, the uh, guy who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, he, he wrote those when he was blind. Um, Helen Keller, she was a very influential woman in the 18 and 1900s. Uh, she was blind, she was deaf, and she was mute. But she was the first blind and deaf person to earn a college degree. And then she wrote 12 books. She couldn't see, she couldn't hear, she couldn't speak, but she wrote 12 books. Uh, Albert Einstein, of course, one of the greatest scientific minds of the last century, uh, did amazing things with science and with mathematics. Um, he couldn't read until he was eight years old. Um, actually, his teachers told him, people told Einstein, that he had a learning disability. Imagine looking back and saying, I was the one that told Einstein he couldn't learn. And actually, in school, he, he struggled with the subject of math. And there are many, many more examples, both through history and, and today, of, of people who seemingly have fewer abilities than the average person, and yet they go on to do above-average things. And they show that it doesn't necessarily matter what your natural abilities are, but you can still do amazing things. So kind of keep that thought in the back of your mind as we get to the book of, of Judges. So as, as we come to this point in Judges chapter 3, we come to a very critical but, but dark time in Israel's history. Right before this, Joshua has, has brought the children of Israel into the promised land. They've had successes, they've had victories, they have conquered the promised land, and now they are settled in. But as we get into the book of Judges, we, we find that Israel begins to fall away from God. They begin to worship false idols, they begin to uh, marry the pagan nations around them, basically disobeying all the commands that Moses and Joshua had given to them before. And so now, as the book of Judges begins, Joshua has died. And so he's no longer providing leadership for Israel, and Israel begins to fall away from God. So in the book of Judges, we see this continual cycle of Israel disobeying God, God sending punishment, and then Israel cries out for help, and then God answers their prayers, and he sends them a deliverer. So in, in spite of Israel's repeated sin and repeated disobedience, God continually throughout this book raises up these deliverers for the people called judges. And so that's what the Hebrew word for judge means. It means deliverer 
or, or Savior. You know, whenever we think of the word judge, we think of a man in a courtroom with, with a gavel. But in this context, the word for judge means deliverer or, or Savior. And so that kind of sets the stage as we arrive at Judges chapter 3. And, and we'll start in verse 12. And at this point, there's only been one judge so far. So this is pretty early on in this time period uh, with Israel. But once again, we will see the cycle begin. So let's start by reading verses 12 through 14. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So Israel once again begins to worship these false gods. They, they once again begin to disregard the, the teachings and the laws of God, and they begin to worship false gods. And so as is typical for the book of Judges, God's punishment for them is that they are enslaved to an enemy nation. And so in this case, they become enslaved to the nation of Moab. And now Moab was a longtime enemy of Israel. They were actually uh, distant cousins. They were, uh, they were related via Abraham and Lot. Uh, but Moab was always an enemy of Israel. Whenever Israel is, is leaving Egypt, um, they have to cross through Moabite territory. And instead of helping the Israelites or, or blessing the Israelites, instead they try to attack them and they try to curse them. And as a result of that, God bans the, the uh, Moabite people from ever entering into the congregation of the Lord. So these are longtime enemies of Israel, but now, as a result of Israel's sin, as a result of their disobedience, they find themselves once again in chains. Remember, that was the whole point of the book of Exodus, right? Is that they were escaping 400 years of slavery, right? And God showed himself mighty. God showed himself strong in Exodus and in Joshua as he delivered his people from Egypt. And then as they enter into the promised land and God gives them the promised land finally after all these years. But not long after that, Israel once again sins against God and now they find themselves enslaved to their rivals, Moab. And this King Eglon, he, he, he forms this coalition with other longtime rivals of Israel, the, the Ammonites and the Amalekites. So he's kind of the one orchestrating this whole thing. And it says in verse 13 that Eglon defeats Israel and takes from them the city of Palms. Now at first glance, that doesn't really seem that significant, but um, the city of Palms is Jericho. All right, so they lost Jericho, right? Just a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, the amazing victory with Joshua and with Rahab and how they were able to take Jericho. But now they have lost it, right? So this was not just a key uh, political loss. This was a huge symbolic loss for the Israelites. They lost the city that God had given to them. This was the very first city that God gave them in their conquest of the promised land, and now it's in enemy hands. And not only that, but in order for Moab to have taken Jericho, they would have also had to have taken control of the Jordan River, right? Whenever Joshua and the Israelites were going over to conquer the promised land, they crossed over the Jordan River. That's where God parted that river for them, just like he did, like he did with the Red Sea. And they miraculously made it over, right? So they lost control of the Jordan River, and they lost control of Jericho, right? So a lot of uh, not only national 
and political losses here, but a lot of symbolic losses for the nation of Israel. And so for 18 years now, as we get to verses 14 and 15, Israel has been enslaved. 18 years of defeat, 18 years of humiliation, 18 years of slavery. But God is going to once again hear the cries of his people and raise up for them a man who will be their deliverer, who will be their judge. And so let's start in verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So God here is, is going to pick a very unlikely man to be the deliverer, to be the savior, to be the judge for Israel. You may have not have heard of him before. Maybe it's been a while since you've heard of him. Uh, and his name is, is Ehud. Some people pronounce his name Ehud, uh, but we're going to stick with the Texan pronunciation this morning and just call him Ehud, okay? Um, and so we don't really know too much about Ehud, but the Bible does tell us a couple of things about him that I want to point out. First of all, he's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the city of Jericho had been given to the tribe of Benjamin as an inheritance. Whenever Joshua and the Israelites entered into the promised land, the city of Jericho was given to the tribe of Benjamin. So them losing Jericho was not just a huge loss for, for Israel. This was a huge loss for the tribe of Benjamin as well. And then the Bible also points out um, that he was left-handed. Who are my left-handed people in here? Who, who, are, who are the uh, people who are left-handed? I guess I should raise my left hand. Any lefties in here? Okay, awesome, awesome. Um, I'm right-handed, but I always thought it would be difficult to grow up in this right-handed world, right? I've heard from lefties that it can be more difficult to learn how to write. Uh, I've heard that it's more difficult to handle scissors or uh, golf clubs or whatever. I'm sure the left-handed people here can fill me in on the injustices of living in a right-handed world. Um, and it's really interesting, though, as you look kind of across cultures and across times, uh, being left-handed has always been kind of been viewed in a negative way. I'm sure you lefties can understand that as well. Um, but there's actually some advantages. Apparently, uh, scientists tell us that you're more likely to be a genius if you're left-handed. So you're more likely to be a genius. Congratulations. Um, it's advantageous for you in sports because most of your opponents won't know how to orient themselves against you, uh, especially in boxing. Um, and also, apparently, uh, you can see better underwater. So I don't know. That's just what they say. But y'all can test that out tomorrow uh, and, just, and just let me know if that's true or not, okay? Um, that's, that's just what they say. So you can all try that out. Uh, and there's also a lot of famous people throughout history that have been lefties as well. There's actually a disproportionate number of our uh, U.S. presidents have been left-handed. So y'all have got a lot going for you. Um, but as you look throughout history, it's just kind of interesting. There's always been like this negative stigma for some reason uh, for being a left-handed person. Uh, the Latin word for being left-handed is, is sinister, okay? So if you're left-handed in here this morning, you are sinister, okay? I, I didn't make that up. It's true, okay? Um, the French word, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. I tried. It sounds horrible, but it means awkward, Right? So the French word for being left-handed means you're awkward. Um, even our English word for left uh, comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word that means weak. Okay? 
Um, I'm not saying it. I'm just telling you what it means. Um, But whenever the Bible describes Ehud as uh, being left-handed, there's a little more to it than just he was a lefty. Because when that phrase is literally translated, it means that he could not use his right hand or that his right hand was, was handicapped in some way. So we don't know if it was maybe um, a, a birth defect or maybe it was crushed in an accident, but Ehud could not use his right hand. It's also possible that that's just their cultural way of saying he was left-handed, but there's a strong possibility here that Ehud wasn't just a lefty, but he actually had a crippled right hand. And of course, in this context, in this culture, the right hand, the right, har- the, uh, right arm, was the uh, symbol of strength and of blessing. Right? That was a huge cultural thing, that if a father was blessing his son, he wouldn't use his left hand, he would use his right hand. And so, and another kind of ironic thing is that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And for those of you who are named Benjamin in here, I hope you know the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. Okay, so you have a guy from the tribe of Benjamin in a, in a culture that puts heavy emphasis on the right hand of strength and of blessing, but his right hand is disabled. His right hand is crippled. And God is going to raise him up and use him to be the deliverer for Israel. So he was a very unlikely candidate, but we're, but we're going to see in these next verses that he was a man of faith and that he was brave. Let's look at verse uh, 16 through 18 here. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So in verse 15, Ehud is either chosen or he volunteers to bring the tribute to King Eglon. And of course, this, this tribute was essentially uh, a national version of paying the bully your lunch money at school so he doesn't beat you up, right? So this is a forced tribute. Um, we don't know if he was volunteered or, or if he was chosen, uh, but I imagine he was an easy candidate to pick. Uh, he's not going to be viewed as a threat to the enemy. He's relatively disposable, right? And so they, they send Ehud on this mission to give the enemy king their payment. Uh, and then we see, though, in verse 16 that he goes prepared. It says that he had this, uh, this dagger that was about 18 inches long, and it's the first example we see of a concealed carry, okay? So he's got this concealed carry dagger on him. Uh, it's, it's small enough to fit on his thigh. No one can see it. No one can detect it. Uh, he, he goes prepared with this dagger that's designed for one thing, and that's to assassinate this king. And so in verse 17, he and his companions deliver this tribute to the enemy king, Eglon, Um, And now 18 years into Eglon's reign, he is fat and he is comfortable. And the Bible points out that he is fat. And so as I read this story, I've I've always kind of envisioned Eglon to kind of look a little something like this. Uh, That's kind of my my image of Eglon in my mind as as, as I read this story, okay? And so Ehud approaches this enemy king. He's fat. He's comfortable. He's been dominating these people for 18 years and he doesn't suspect anything. And what's interesting is actually Eglon's name. Uh, it's the same Hebrew root as the word that means a fattened calf that's prepared for a sacrifice. So little did he know how true that was about to be. Uh, so, so Ehud delivers the tribute. He and his companions, they complete their duty. Uh, but then in verse 18, he walks away. He leaves. Once again humiliated. 
once again defeated, once again having lost their inheritance to this enemy Moabite king. But then we see something unexpected happen in the first part of verse 19. It says, But he, Ehud, himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. And so Ehud has just left the palace. They're walking home. They're traveling home after having completed their mission. And he arrives at this place called Gilgal. And he stops and he turns around. And so for this to really mean anything, we have to understand what this place called Gilgal was. Um, you'll, you'll see this word Gilgal in several places in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's the name of an actual town, but most of the time, like, like right now in this passage, it's not the name of a place, it's the name of a type of place. Because the word Gilgal means wheel or it means circle. Um, and so in this context, it was usually a circle of stones that was set up to be a place of worship and a place of sacrifice. And this particular Gilgal that Ehud was at probably looked something similar to this. Usually, whenever I would read about this growing up, I always imagined it just being like a pile of rocks uh, because this, this Gilgal was associated with, with Joshua. Whenever Joshua and the children of Israel cross the uh, Jordan River, he commands the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel to gather stones and to build a Gilgal. And so this Gilgal that Ehud is at is this exact same Gilgal. And this is just an example of what a Gilgal would have looked like. So it's not just a pile of rocks. It's, just, it's this massive circle of stones. And there at the center would be a, a higher pile of stones, which was used for worship and for sacrifice. So it wasn't just some random pile of rocks along the side of the road. This is a big deal. Because this Gilgal that Joshua builds after they cross the Jordan River, that's the first place of worship in the promised land. This becomes their, their, fir- their first foothold in the promised land as they begin their conquest. And so further into Israel's history, this was a huge, important site of worship and of memorial as to what God had done for their nation. But now as, as Ehud approaches this Gilgal, after having delivered the enemy king his tribute, instead of this Gilgal now being a place of worship, for the one true God who has delivered his people, the Bible says that now there are idols there. A, a symbol of Israel's sin and disobedience to God. They have fallen away from worshiping the one true God. And this place that was designed to be a place of worship for God is now being used as a place for idol worship. But it's here that Ehud remembers, though, something that Joshua said in the book of Joshua, chapter 4, when they were first constructing this Gilgal. Just just turn with me very quickly to the book of Joshua. It's just a book back. Joshua, chapter 4. And we'll look quickly at verses 21 through 24. Joshua, chapter 4, verse 21 through 24. Joshua is speaking to the people. He's he's telling them why they are constructing this Gilgal, this this massive uh, stone piece of worship. And he begins in verse 21. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. And I'll look at verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. 
that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Again, in this culture, in this context, the only hand that Joshua would have been referring to is the right hand of God, the right arm of God's strength. And so as Ehud is here staring at this amazing memorial to God's might and to God's power, he remembers that even though there are idols being worshipped here right now, I know that my God's arm is strong. Ehud's standing there with his withered right hand, but he remembers that the right hand of God's strength is strong enough to defeat the enemy. And it's here that Ehud, despite his disabilities, despite his own personal weaknesses, it's here that he believes in the strength and power of God, and it's here at Gilgal that Ehud turns around. So let's continue reading in verses 19 through 25 of Judges chapter 3. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So Ehud, he's walking away from the palace. He stops at Gilgal. His companions keep walking home, but Ehud turns around and heads back to the enemy palace. I'm sure as uh, the guards saw Ehud alone walking towards them, they weren't intimidated. Here's this guy with his crippled right hand. He's walking to us alone. We, We just saw him. We know he's not a threat. Of course, Eglon doesn't see him as a threat. And so they let him in to speak privately with the king. And so Eglon stands up to receive this secret message from God that Ehud says he has for him, of course, not suspecting what's about to happen. And Ehud says that, that powerful line. He says, I have a word from God for you. And Ehud pulls the dagger from his right thigh, and he assassinates Eglon. The enemy king has now been defeated by this disabled guy from the smallest tribe of Benjamin. After 18 years of defeat, after 18 years of oppression, after 18 years of constant reminder of failure and their own sin, now the enemy king has been defeated. And Ehud now runs back to his own people in victory, ready to finish the job. Let's look at verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. It's almost mentioned in passing here, but here he passes Gilgal again. Except this time Ehud doesn't stop because God's hand has once again been shown to be mighty and the king has been defeated. Then in verse 27, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was their leader. 
And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So after Ehud assassinates Eglon, there's panic, there's confusion in the palace. What's going on? What's happening? And that gives him enough time to escape. And so he, he runs back to his people. And I imagine his companions who had just been with him earlier that day see Ehud running to them. And they know Ehud. They're wondering, what, what is he up to now? What's going on? They kind of dismiss him. But he runs past them. He, he runs into the barracks. He grabs with his left hand the, uh, the war trumpet, and he sounds the trumpet. And we can see that God was with Ehud because at, the, at verse 27 it says that he led the armies of Israel. Now this was a guy that probably would not have been allowed to enter uh, the boot camp of the Israel army. But here he is leading the entire nation against the coalition of three nations that has oppressed them for the last 18 years. And Ehud doesn't point them to himself. He points them to the Lord. He says, the Lord has given you the victory. Ehud was just there. Ehud was just available to be used. And he was pointing them to God as the source of their victory. And so because of Ehud's faith, because of Ehud's availability, Israel was able to defeat Moab. They were able to take back what was rightfully theirs. And the Bible says that they then experienced peace for 80 years. Ehud was a disabled deliverer. Those two words don't often go together in our minds. But as we've been looking at these seemingly random selection of heroes from Scripture, we're reminded again that they are heroes not because they had any special power within them, They were heroes because of the God we serve and his incredible power. And that's why in order for you and for me to be used by God, we don't have to have any special gifts, any special talents, any special abilities. The ability that God is most interested in is your availability. Are you available? Are you ready? Are you willing to be used by God? Being available despite your perceived weaknesses, being available despite your perceived disabilities? Are you at least willing to say, hey, God, I know I'm not much, but I'm available to be used by you? About 1,300 years after Ehud, another deliverer would come in weakness. He was born in a cave. He grew up in obscurity. He lived a life of poverty And he was murdered like a criminal. This deliverer, though, Jesus, provided us with a lasting victory that wouldn't just last 80 years, but that would last forever. You know, just like Ehud delivered when the enemy king Eglon least expected it, Jesus saved us when evil thought it had won. When Jesus was there hanging on the cross, bleeding to death, evil thought it had defeated the Son of God. But it was there on the cross that Jesus cried out, It is finished. And he secured our freedom. And he secured our salvation forever. 
And three days later, he walked out of his own tomb, finalizing his defeat of sin and death. And just like Eglon, the enemy king, the enemy tyrant of death now lays defeated. Victory does not come through strength. According to God's kingdom, victory comes through our own weakness. Strength through weakness. So if you're here this morning and you think that you're going to be able to to get into heaven based on your own merit, based on your own strength, based on your own power or your own goodness, the Bible tells us yet again this morning that you are not going to make it. No one can make it in their own power. No one can make it in their own strength. The power, the strength only comes from Jesus Christ. That's why God sent his son Jesus to save us. If we could save ourselves, if if we could muster up enough strength to do it on our own, God would not have sent his only son to die that brutal death. But it's because you and I are too weak to save ourselves. That is why God sent his son Jesus to save you. You cannot earn your salvation, but Jesus has earned it for you. Salvation is a gift, not a reward for accomplishing a task or doing the right things. Salvation only comes through the weakness of faith, of believing and trusting in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You know, we all like to take those uh, strength finder tests, right? I like to find out how good I am at certain things. And, And that's all well and good. But in God's kingdom, God is not going to use you until you realize how weak you are. God is not going to show you how strong you are. God is going to show you how strong he is and how much he can do through you despite your own weaknesses. If, if you're in here this morning and you already are a believer, you know, like me, I want my life to matter. I, I don't want my life to be characterized by uh, defeat, by sin. I want to be bold in sharing my faith. I want my life to have an impact not just now but for all of eternity. How, how is that going to happen, though? It's not by my own power. It's by the power of God. It's by realizing that I don't have the strength within me to make my life pleasing to God, even now as a Christian. It's realizing that I am weak and that I am unable to do so apart from him. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And so our response to that is just like Paul says in that same passage, is then that we boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? All throughout Scripture, you see this pattern of God taking the weak, taking the lowly, taking the nobodies, taking the disabled people, and doing something mighty with them. And it's not until you and I realize that we are those disabled people that God can do something with us. You might already think, you know, I don't have much talent. I don't have much ability. I don't know what God can do with me. But the good news is, is that it's never been about how able you are. Not with Ehud and not with you. It's all about God's power. It's all about what God can do with you and me in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our failures, in spite of our past, and do something awesome that only he can. You know, maybe there's a ministry here at Hallmark that you have yet to pursue. God's put it on your heart, and you've never taken that step of faith to make yourself available. Maybe there's a family member, a, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. God has placed them on your heart to share with them the gospel, 
and you felt that tug, you felt that leading, but you've never taken that step of faith to say, okay, God, I'm going to be available to do something. I'm going to be available to share the gospel with this person. One of my life verses is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Um, Isaiah is just a young man, and he's confronted uh, by this awesome vision of God. And he realizes how weak and worthless he is compared to God. But then he hears God say, Whom will I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds with what I think is one of the most simple and beautiful prayers in Scripture. He says, Here I am, send me. Is that your heart this morning to say, God, I know I'm not much. I don't bring much to the table. Compared to you, I'm nothing. But if you want to do something with someone, I am available. Here I am. Send me. Use me. You know, we read stories like this and we read these amazing things that people have done. I think, God can't do that with me. God can't do something amazing with me. But God's power is shown strong through simple acts of obedience on a daily basis, through mothers loving their children well, through us sharing the gospel with family and friends that need to hear it, serving in the kids' ministry here, whatever it may be, God takes these simple, seemingly powerless acts of obedience on our end and through his spirit transforms them into things that he can use to change someone's eternity. The question is not, are you able? The question is, are you available? If you close your eyes with me for a moment as Ben continues to play, would anyone in here say, you know, Nathan, I realize that I haven't made myself available to be used by God. I've been trusting in my own strength or my own power, or I've made excuses as to why I can't serve God. I haven't had the faith to step out and say, God, here I am. Send me, use me. But this morning, God has laid some things on my heart, and I want to make myself available to be used by him. I want to talk with him about some things that he's impressed upon me and make myself available to say, God, I don't know what you want to do with me, but all I know is that I'm available, ready, and willing to be used. If that's you this morning, would you just slip your hand up real quick? Just a silent testimony to say, God, I want to be available to be used. God, here I am. Send me. God, here I am. Use me. In a few moments, whenever we stand up for worship, I would ask that you would come forward and pray just as a symbol of you making yourself available to be used by God. Or maybe someone here this morning would say, Nathan, I have never given my life to Jesus. I, I realize that I've been trusting in my own power, my own strength, my own morality or, or good works or church attendance or whatever to save me. But I realize now that I can't save myself. I realize now that I am too weak. And I want to reach up with my left hand of weakness and receive this free gift of salvation. If that's you this morning, as our eyes are closed, would you just slip your hand up for a moment? Say, God, I want to be available to you. I want to be saved. I recognize my weakness. I recognize my inability to save myself. And God, I want to accept that free gift of salvation that you are providing through your son, Jesus. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. 
And if you raise your hand this morning, or maybe even if you didn't, in a few moments we're going to stand up and worship. And there will be people standing down front that would love to talk with you about how you can know for sure that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So take the step of faith. Let God show you how powerful and strong and mighty he is today. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example you have given us through Ehud, how you don't need people who have awesome abilities or amazing talents or uh, lots of money. You just need people who are available to be used by you. And God, I, I thank you that all you desire from us is our availability. And Lord, I pray for, for those here this morning who uh, have not realized maybe until this morning that they need uh, to be saved, that they need to follow Jesus, that they can't save themselves. I pray that you continue to work on their hearts and that they would come forward this morning and accept you. For the rest who are here, Father, who have already accepted you, who are already believers in Jesus Christ, I pray that we would all make ourselves available, that we would stop making excuses as to why we can't and start believing what you can do in us and through us. And Father, we, we thank you for the finished work of your son Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit that you offer to each and every single follower of you. Pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to stand with me this morning. We're going to worship.